Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And please do send in your questions or um, even if you have requests for or um, ideas about, um, you know, shows I should be doing or people I should be interviewing or anything like that, I definitely am interested in your in your feedback and what you guys uh, think about what I'm doing with my channel and um, what you'd like to see on it. So again, the email is askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Had a pretty rough week this last week. Had two podcasts go um, uh, great guns, wonderful interviews, very happy with them, but technical issues uh, that made it impossible for me to be able to get them edited and released to you. That is very upsetting to me. I really, really like getting content to you guys. So uh, between that and some other nonsense, it was a pretty rough week. And, you know, things just feel kind of bleh. So let's let's see if we can kind of rise above that <laughs> somehow. And... Um, Anyway, and just have a good time here answering some of your questions. I put out a podcast last week, and um, it was about the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force. And it was a real, like, this is the boom. Here it is. You want to know about the RPF? I'm going to tell you about the RPF. I hope you guys will check that out. I was actually um, a little surprised it didn't get more um, coverage or more views or whatever um, because it's something I've been, um, you know, asked about many, many times. And in fact, from that podcast and other questions we'll address here about the RPF, things that were not taken up in that podcast because uh, it wasn't a complete A to Z. There were a few things left out. But I tried to give an overall you know, here's how it works, here's how the auditing works, here's what the program's about. And it was, I, as far as I know, it, it was the sing, it, that podcast is the single most extensive one-stop shop for finding out what the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, is. So uh, anyway, I hope you guys will check that out. And let's see, anything else I need to mention? Um, I know, I think we should just get right to your questions now. Let's do it. Sherry Sporn, I really enjoyed the thorough podcast you did on the RPF, but I have a question that you didn't cover. You said that many people didn't make it through and leave the Sea Org instead. How does that work? Is it like routing out or something else? Can they still be in Scientology? Great question, Sherry. Thank you for asking me this. And in fact, yes, they absolutely... Well, okay, here's... Um, it depends as to as to whether they can... How they route out and how they... Whether they can still stay in Scientology. Um, most can, but here's how it works. When you're on the RPF and, you know, you're already at the bottom rung of the ladder of Scientology, Sea Org... You are scumbag. You got all this work to do. You got to get through this full program. And then you give up. You just go, ah, no, I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And I really want to leave. And you can do that. But there's a process you're going to have to follow. And it is called routing out. It's a, it, there's a route, a, a, a series of steps you have to do. And routing out means you are routing, you're following the route out of the organization. 
And yes, there is such a thing as routing in. Like when you start the RPF, you route into it. This is a, this is Scientology's. So, and there are routing forms with pieces of paper that lay out step by step what the um, path or route or you know steps you have to take in order to get something done. Okay, so in the so routing out of the RPF basically means that you go to what is called the RPF's RPF. And I didn't talk about this really at all. There is a whole issue on it. The RPF's RPF is when you're in treason to the RPF, <laughs> right? You can be in a worse condition than being in the RPF, and that is being in the RPF's RPF. And basically, the RPF's RPF, or RZAR, as it has been even shortened down even more, the RZAR, that's what we called it, the RZAR, and... Um, and I was on the RZR for a week uh, because I had a twin. I was working with somebody who originated wanting to leave the Sea Org. He was done. We had spent a year. Um, you know, when I, when I did my podcast last week, I didn't really talk about my RPF a lot. I talked about certain anecdotes, but it wasn't a breakdown of my program. It was a breakdown of the overall program. So I'll tell you that when I did the RPF, the first um, twin that I had uh, was a, um, a guy I had known outside the RPF and the Sea Org. I, we, you know, we got along. And we spent about a year working together on something that ended up being a complete waste of time, as though all of it is not a complete waste of time. But even within the world of Scientology, we were doing something that was later considered completely unnecessary and wrong. And it was a year that we spent screwing around with that. And I won't get into the details of it other than to tell you that. So he ended up like, okay, I just want to get out of here now. I'm done with this, and, and this isn't going anywhere. And I wasn't feeling so great either, but I still wanted to get through the program. So when one of the pair, one of the twin ship, wants to leave, both twins are going to go to the RZR. And the person who wants to leave is going to have to get a little handling, maybe a little sec check, for leaving, um, where sort of, you know, major questions are asked. Are you leaving the Sea Org over and overt? Uh, are you leaving the Sea Org with an undisclosed, you know, withhold? Is there something you've done, you know, in the Sea Org that, um, that you're getting away with or that someone nearly found out? You know, you, they ask these kind of broad questions as sec check questions. And if you want a real for, thorough breakdown of sec checking and what that's all about, um, that's also in that RPF podcast. Okay, so um, so you're going to be asked sharp and pointed questions, but the idea is to kind of get you out of there. Like they don't want people languishing on the RZR for, you know, too long. But at the same time, um, I you know it, it depends on the situation and context and time because I did see people languishing on the RZR for a very long time, in a couple cases. Just you know, nope, not interested. Don't really want to move forward. Not really interested in doing anything. And remember, if you watch that podcast, I mentioned how some people who were at the state of OT need to wait for an OT twin to show up and can't really do much with the program. Well, there was one guy who ended up on the RSR who was an OT, didn't really want to do the program, but they really wouldn't let him leave. 
You know, he was just kind of sitting on the fence, and they never really would let him go over the edge. They kind of held on to him, and he never really got enough gumption up to say, okay, I'm, 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 I'm done. Get me out of here. You know, his wife was on the RPF. She was encouraging him to stay and get through it, even though there was nobody for him to work with for a very long time. So he was sitting languishing around on the RZR. But generally speaking, that's the path out of the RPF. Now, if you, um, and, and it's a usual sort of route. So like I said, you get a sec check, you get a little cleanup, and then they send you on your way. And they want to make sure that you're not going to go out there and badmouth the Sea Org or badmouth Scientology. And they don't particularly expect to see you for a while. But they, um, in fact, they probably won't want to even see you for a while. But they, um, but they will let you go. Now, if you are one of those people who ended up on the RPF because it was either you're going to get declared a suppressive if you don't do this RPF program that we're ordering you to do, or you can leave the, you know, so you can leave the Sea Org and get declared, or you do the RPF, right? Not much of a choice when it comes to, you know, being in the Scientology mindset and getting declared, losing all your friends, potentially your family, etc. Um, so in those cases, if the guy gets on the RPF and then says, okay, I'm, I'm really sick of this, I want to leave, and he ends up on the RZR and wants to leave, uh, he'll get declared. That still is going to happen to that person. And I saw, I saw instances of that. In fact, right when I arrived on the RPF, there were a couple people who were on their way out and had been, you know, were getting declared. So, you know, so that would happen. But otherwise, if you're not one of those people... You know, nobody's going to really think twice about missing you or thinking about you or anything like that because you're on the RPF. You know, the Sea Org is pretty much almost given up on you. Um, and they're not waiting with bated breath for you to get through the RPF. You're over there just, you know, doing your program and nobody's really thinking or seeing you or, or thinking about you too much. Um, so, yeah, so if you leave from that... You know, it's not particularly some big, huge surprise to them that because a lot of people leave the RPF through the RPF. So um, anyway, that's kind of how that goes. If you end up wanting to stay or if you go to the RZR and then you want to get back like I did. OK, so I go to the RZR. My twin's going to leave. He gets his thing and off he goes. I have to do lower conditions, uh, the, the liability formula, the, the make up the damage and, you know, atone to the group in some fashion, prove that you're worthy to be back in the group. That's what the liability thing is. Um, so I had to do those condition formulas. I had to write them up. That's why I make this little hand motion. And, um, and I did treason, enemy, doubt, and liability, which are these Scientology lower condition steps. They're steps that you take in order to prove that you're a loyal group member. And um, I think I made something in the mill for the RPF itself. Like some, There's a library room in the RPF where they have all the re Hubbard's references and books and stuff like that. And I think I made a cabinet or something for that space. And um, that was my makeup, the damage for, you know, ending up on the RZR in the first place. And then I had to take that around and get the signature of all the people who are on the RPF and get them to approve me being back on the program. And everybody was, okay, okay, cool. He's gonna, he's one of the good guys. He's here to get through the program, you know. So I did that. And then I spent another two years with another twin getting through the program.
So, uh, yeah, so that was my experience with that. And there you go. TJ Feeney. I've seen interviews where Mike Rinder referred to the RPF as a wonderful program of something for people who are stressed at their job. Would he have known the full horrors of the RPF at that time and was just forced to toe the party line? And what is the general awareness of RPF conditions within the Scientology public? Okay, so yes, Mike definitely would have been aware of what the RPF was. And the thing about the Scientology mindset and about extreme mindsets in general, and this is, I'm going to just keep preaching this because I think it's a very, very important thing to understand about all of this, is that a person who is in an extremist mindset about a particular subject or topic or area or person is unable completely unable to think critically about that topic or subject. It's, a, it's an inverse proportion. It's a spectrum. It's not a black and white thing. It's not like the light switch just is suddenly turned off. But, by, but as you become more and more involved and more and more deeply accepting of any religious or any belief system, really, we're not just talking about religion here, any idea set or belief set, let's put it that way, um, as you go deeper and deeper in and you accept it as more and more true and also, by the way, are making it more and more part of your own little personality package, you are identifying with that group, right? You and the group, same, same. So the more you get into that, the less critical you can be about that subject or topic. So... Mike Rinder knows about the horrors of the RPF, yet at the same time, Mike Rinder also believes at the time that he's saying this, and I'm just assuming this here, you know, I don't really know Mike Rinder's, um, you know, headspace or where he was at on that, but, I'll ta- but I'm communicating my ideas about it and what I know Scientologists and Sea Org members think and what they generally, and, and I'll say Mike Rinder, I'll include in this, um, is that the RPF is also a necessary step and program in order to rehabilitate a person. See, this the, the loaded language that we see outside of Scientology, we, when we look into it and we go, well, that's obviously nuts, right? Like calling this abusive re-education program a, a rehabilitation program. That's Orwellian as hell. But when you're in the Scientology mindset, those words mean exactly what they say. Like, you believe it's rehabilitation. I mean, that's what I thought the program was about. I knew it was punishment. I knew that as a Sea Org member, and I'm pretty sure Mike did too, that, you know, going to the RPF is a bad thing. It's not something you want to do. Um, And yet, and yet, at the same time, when I landed on the RPF, the RPF in charge, the Sea Org member who runs the RPF and actually makes sure that everybody's moving through their program and is getting their steps done, that guy, uh, who you could sort of think of as like a drill sergeant type personality, that is literally the, the, um, the description that Hubbard gives is preferably you want somebody with, with military experience to be the RPFIC. And it's a it's a drill sergeant kind of position. So this guy would stand up in front of our musters at the RPF and tell us that people outside of the RPF, like people like public Scientologists, 
actually want to pay to do the RPF, that there are people who have originated wanting to pay to do it because they think it's such an amazing program and we should be happy we're getting through it and we're taking way too long. We're languishing on this program by spending years on it, right? Well, this is the guy who runs the program. He definitely is understanding what the problems are and why it takes so long to get through this program. But here's this guy preaching at us that it's a six-month program. And he knows damn well that it's not a six-month program. He's literally in charge of it. He knows all the steps. And he knows there's no way anybody could possibly get through it in six months. Yet he kept repeating that to us in the same way that Mike Rinder would repeat to the public and the press that the RPF is this wonderful re-education step, a time for people to chill, relax, calm down. And, you know, at one point in time, back in the early 1970s, when this thing first started in 1974, that is kind of what the RPF was, back when it was first on the boats, on the ships. And people did get a chance to kind of chill and decompress and do some work around the boat and and kind of work with one another. And, and it really was a weeks long or a couple months program and you get back to work. And I'm not saying that's, you know, a wonderful thing, but I'm saying it's a very different thing from the RPF I did and the RPF that the flag orders describe now, So, uh, which I went over in the podcast. So, so you get this sort of like contrary... You, you know, you have the, the thing, the thing that's, that's so amazing about the human mind is we are able to hold two completely contradictory pieces of information in our head at the same time and think of ways that both of them can be true at the same time. And even though they directly contradict one another, right? And I'm not just talking about one thing is true under certain contexts and another thing is true under other contexts because that could be a case where two seemingly contradictory pieces of information can be resolved. I'm not talking about that because that's actually logical. I'm talking about the illogic of being able to make, you know, black is white and white is black actually make sense, <laughs> that they, both of those things can be true at the same time. And that's the amazing thing and the curse of having a human mind. <laughs> so um, so this is how Mike Rinder could tell the press or public, ah, RPF, it's all a good thing, and still actually know that it's not. And uh, and yet believe both things to be true at the same time. I know it's, it's wild, but, um, but that's how it is. And as far as the general awareness in the Scientology public, they're aware that it exists. Um, if they are around a Sea Org base is generally how that knowledge comes about. If you're in a lower org, a city-level church, um, you might hear about it, but of course you're never going to see or experience anything like the RPF at, a, at, you know, at the local Denver org here. They don't have, you know, they have a couple Sea Org members maybe, but they're not doing an RPF here. And the public never have anything to do with the RPF other than know that it exists. So... That's about as much exposure as they have to it. When you go to a Sea Org base, sometimes you could see the RPF. And you're like, oh, who are those guys? Oh, it's the RPF. Oh, okay. And so you get an idea that they work really hard and they run around everywhere. And they seem, you know, if you were to if you were to bump into one of them, they'd smile and try to put on a good appearance because they're not, they're not gonna get in trouble for, you know, presenting a bad image to the public, they're already in enough trouble as it is being on the RPF, right? They don't need to add to their misery by 
you know, spreading how horrible the whole thing is to the public. That's the last thing anybody in the RPF is ever going to do. So anyway, so that's kind of how that rolls. Mia culpa. I have a couple semi-related questions regarding underage Sea Org members. One, when someone who is still within the compulsory school attendance age range joins the Sea Org, how does Scientology get around those pesky truancy laws? And two, would someone as young as 15 or so actually end up in the RPF for infractions deemed worthy of such a punishment? Is there a minimum age for that? What about the whole? And did you ever know of someone being on the RPF at a very young age? I've read that children are not seen as children in Scientology, so my guess is that the age of the individual would not come into consideration. I certainly hope I'm mistaken, but somehow I doubt it. Thanks. Okay, thanks for the questions. Um, First off, in terms of the compulsory school attendance, what I saw myself is that, yes, there were Sea Org members who were underage and still attending school, and school was set up for them on the base. Now, this is, uh, you know, in the 2000s now. We're not talking about the crap that went on in the 70s, 80s, and 90s where these kids were given substandard schooling, no schooling at all. The, you know, the, the nursery was a was a cockroach-filled disaster zone. We're not talking about that time. This more closer to present time, um, there was somebody assigned to who got accredited as a, as a teacher, got some kind of credentials, and was able to run an actual uh, school setup on the Sea Org base and deal with and educate the kids. And he set up little check sheets and, and a little, you know, grade system and they got textbooks and they were doing the whole number. And it wasn't great because they were studying in a Scientology classroom with all the other people doing other Scientology classes. And they were kids, you know, and um, and there's a lot more to learning than just sitting reading books or watching videos. And that's basically what they were doing. And they their school time could be cut across by post demands or, you know, jobs, job problems, because they were little Sea Org members. But the Office of Special Affairs had set up that they were supposed to be on a certain number of hours and they were supposed to secure at a certain time because they were only supposed to have eight working hours, I think, a day. And then their, then their study time, their school time, which was, I believe for them, it was five hours a day. So they were doing like their study and then I think they were doing their, their, their work time. And I think by like 9.30 or 10 o'clock or something, they were supposed to be secured and you'd see them running around at 11 o'clock at night after you get off post or 11.30. And there they are sitting around in the stairwell talking. And you're like, yeah, school, right? Whatever. Bunch of slackers, right? And we're talking about minors. I mean, it was just our whole attitude just really sucked about kids. It really, really did. Um, anyway, so that was kind of how they get around those pesky truancy laws. Now, as far as the RPF for minors go... Yes, RPF uh, definitely has had minors on it. Uh, people have been assigned for cause of credit card, you know, fraud or um, 2D stuff, you know, sex stuff, etc. I've I've seen a couple cases, not lots and lots of them. I think there was a 15-year-old. I think the youngest I ever heard about somebody on the RPF, like ever, was a kid back on the back on the ships back in the day. There was a woman who was still a Sea Org member who told me she was on the RPF as a kid on the ship. And uh, not the Freewinds, but Hubbard's boat, you know, way back in the day. And um, 
so I was like, damn. And she was like 12 years old or something, you know. Uh, and it, But again, the RPF was a little bit of a different program then than it became later. So grueling, hard work, absolutely not an excuse. It was definitely child abuse. But um, uh, the, the abuse that comes with the program later in time was even worse. And, and there were kids doing that program, too. I don't know if any minors ended up in the hole. I, I have no idea. I don't know what the census was there. I know that there were young people um, at the int base and at CMO, so it's entirely possible that the that the the high level management organizations that Miscavige is running directly up there, or used to run directly. Um, uh, have kids. There, there are, you know, there are young people up there. So whether any one of them ended up in the hole or not, I couldn't say. And, um, yeah, children are definitely considered adults in little bodies. That is how Scientologists think of kids, because that's how they're told to think about them. Hubbard, uh, was not great, uh, when it came to his attitude toward his own children and toward children in general. He was a real ruthless asshole taskmaster. So there you go. A.G. As someone who deals with all manner of toxic commentary, varying attitudes, and just generally awful people, how do you let some steam off the valve? Or better yet, what is your recommendation for how to deal with the smoldering contempt and anger that builds below the skin from dealing with this kind of thing. I, too, am working from home now, taking calls for a certain television-slash-internet-slash-wireless phone company, and I suspect that we deal with similar struggles in our daily occupations. Tech support these days ought to be considered a high-risk occupation for stress-related health problems. Hey, AG, thanks for this question. And Ben, I, I really get, uh, actually, I don't know your gender, but I, I really get your question because uh, my, wharf, my wife ugh, worked tech support uh, for Comcast for a long time, and it was brutal to her. Um, she works from home now. She works for a, a health uh, insurance company now, way stress levels, way lower not having to deal with really entitled people calling in, demanding uh, at the top of their lungs, you know, screaming curse words at her for no good reason. There's, there's nothing that Melissa did to cause the situation that they're having. But they feel, uh, mostly Americans, feel, um, well, actually all Americans, yeah, she's working for Comcast. So, you know, this was the kind of... Uh, the people who were calling in were giving her all kinds of trouble. And you guys know what I'm talking about. And yet at the same time, some of us still are kind of abusive towards customer service reps and, and give them very short shrift, um, no tolerance for their mistakes, no tolerance for their attitudes, no tolerance for even the slightest little comma being out of place when they're talking to us. You know, I'm paying for this. You owe me. You know, I mean, this, this is what I'm talking about with this entitled thing is, yeah, we are paying for a service and we do deserve good service. But contacting a customer service person and chewing them out over it, it's just a wrong target 100% of the time. That person is not the cause of your problems. You know, anyway, I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, 
so how do I deal with this stuff? You know, I mean, we used to just, Melissa would come home and it was just chill central. And sometimes I'd even be talking to her during the day, texting and stuff. I mean, it was not, it was not good. I myself have had my ups and downs, as you guys know, I share this with you, um, you know, in reading negative comments, negative feedback on my work. And, you know, when you, when you put as much, um, of yourself into your work as I do, it's, it does become personal and it's hard for it not to be. So, and, and I think that's true across the boards for a lot of people with their jobs, you know, because they're not just drones, you know, and, and we want things to be uh, good for others. We want to feel like we're making a difference. We want to feel like we're a positive contribution to the world. I don't know anybody who doesn't want those things. And, um, and it's hard, you know, when you get it thrown back in your face, told how wrong you are, told how horrible things are. And, of course, the stresses of the current environment and our current situations are not helping this at all. So what do we do? Um, well, okay. The Self-care is the, is the most important care. And, um, and it is vital, vital, vital that we have chill time every single day. I um, have grown to learn about this over the years. I didn't used to give myself or afford myself time off or uh, chill time. Now it is absolutely a necessity in my life, and I can see why. Um, because not having it in my life caused, you know, all the the adrenals and, and hormones. I mean, everything was just all the time, right? And it's just not a healthy state to be. It's not a good place to be. It's like when fight or flight is kicked in you know, all the time, um, that's, you know, that's the sort of thing that creates what we could now know as, as PTSD or complex PTSD. So it's not a good place to be. You're going to stress yourself out. You're going to, you're going to stress your body out. You're going to wear it out, literally age it, you know, prematurely. And, um, and that's not good. So, so before counseling, before anything else, it is the basics. It is diet. It is sleep. It is chill time. You know, it is, those three things are absolutely vital on a daily basis. You must get enough sleep. The, if you want to create a psychotic person, deny them sleep. Anyone. Anyone. I don't care who we're talking about. I can break anybody down in a few days. Anybody could. By denying them sleep. Right? That will make you crazier than anything. So... Um, so conversely, if you want to be in a good, healthy mental state in a place where you can deal with the problems of your life and the problems of the environment, you must be rested. Um, and then of course, the second thing is food. This has to do with energy levels and it has to do with, um, you know, your body running right. And when your body doesn't have the energy that it needs and the brain, by the way, is taking up 30% of your body budget. So it's also the first thing to kind of start getting shut down a bit or doesn't get the full brunt of what it, you know, when it's not, when your body doesn't have enough energy because it's not fed and rested, then your brain is one of the first places that starts feeling that by one, you feel hungry and tired, but also your ability to use your front lobes, your frontal lobes here for rational thinking is reduced just biologically. It has nothing to do with how good or bad of a person you are. It's just a biological process. So, um, 
so if you want to be thinking as clearly as you can and as calmly as you can and as chill as you can and be able to actually deal with the problems of life, then it cannot cannot be stressed enough that you rest and you eat, okay? Um, and then there's chill time. And what I mean by that is not necessarily just, you know, vegetating on the couch, although that certainly is some chill time. Also taking walks or getting some exercise, um, you know, you don't have to be a fitness guru. You don't have to be on a on the Beverly Hills diet. You don't have to be doing anything special to do chill time, you know, where you just go take a walk or you take a little jog or you get out and get some space. Standing on your porch for a few minutes and just looking out at the sky and admiring the day can do wonders for you in terms of sort of recataloging and refiguring and recalibrating everything, you know, and and especially when you come off of work or come off of an intense project of some kind, um, you know, generally, I don't think it's a good idea to just plop in front of the TV right away. I think getting your body and moving it around a little bit, not, again, nothing stressful, nothing free, you know, nothing to freak out about, just calm time chill time, you know, um, but but letting your body move around, especially if you've been sitting all day or sitting for a majority of your time, you know, getting the blood going, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so all of this is pretty common sense, simple stuff. I'm not saying anything crazy or unusual or weird or particularly even uh, surprising, but I hope by stressing these things that I am um, kind of pumping up the utility of it because I forget this stuff all the time and then I remind myself after I've had a rough day and I you know I haven't eaten anything and it's 3:30 in the afternoon and I'm about ready to <laughs> you know so it's not like I'm you know the 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 best example for all of this stuff but um, but I but more often than not I I, I do practice what I preach um, I mean, we can get into talking about, you know, the, the specifics of your diet and stuff, but I, you know, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> you know, I just think that the mental breaks that we give ourselves are the most important breaks we can give ourselves. And there is never an inappropriate time um, to, to make time for that, right? I mean, obviously, in the middle of a crisis or emergency, you got to deal with the crisis or emergency, but I'm talking about an ongoing daily routine it, it it is it's more important than you realize to give yourself that time no matter how much you think you don't have it or don't deserve it or can't afford to take it or whatever okay it really really is you will find that if you do that and you can face the day with a calmer you know sort of Thing, then social media won't be so disastrous, won't be so triggering. Um, and if you feel yourself being triggered by social media, by the news, by what's going on, by people around you, you know, again, this is where taking a break, giving yourself some chill time is the single best thing you can do for yourself in that moment. It might not feel like it. It feels like bopping this guy in the nose or, you know, letting them have it with some ripper or one-liner or insult on social media or, you know, uh, someone's wrong on the internet, you know, and then it seems in the moment that that's the right thing to do. (laughs) But you know what? (laughs) It never is. (laughs) 
<laughs> it never is. I have man, so many regrets about, you know, just harshly bah, somebody with a zinger or something, you know. So as far as, um, you know, as far as the contempt and the anger that builds up, I get it. And I have to remind myself about people's basic goodness all the time. I have to remind myself that um, other people are suffering the same way I am. And it's entirely possible that the, that the you know, jerk that I'm having some fight with on the internet or am receiving nasty communications from, and even from tech support, you know, you're getting these calls from people who are irate, you know, fit to be tied, ready to hang you. Um, you know, those people are just people too, and they are struggling, and you don't know what the specifics of their life are. And we are so quick to judge and so slow to forgive or think twice about the conditions of other people's lives. We project our own lives onto other people, think that their problems are no big deal, you know, and look at my problems and nah, you got nothing going on. And we don't understand that they're not us and we're not them. And their ability to deal with problems might be here where our ability might be here on certain topics and their ability to deal with stuff in other areas might be, you know, vastly greater than ours. But we don't see that with our eyes or hear that with our ears. And so we make assumptions and and project all kinds of horrible things on people. And I have to remind myself all the time when I am feeling out of sorts and and that the world is an evil place where, you know, everybody is just in it for themselves and, and nobody cares about others and all that. I have to like, okay, okay. <sighs> that's not true. And I know that's not true. But I really only know that's not true when I'm calm and chill and rational, and my frontal lobes are engaged. And that's why I go on this whole tear about keeping yourself in a physical condition where your frontal lobes can stay engaged, and you can actually use your brain at maximum efficiency, you know. And I think that that's the physical component of critical thinking that is so important, and we don't give ourselves the time to do that. And our society isn't structured to give us that time either. You have to fight, just like you have to fight to do critical thinking in the first place because it's not natural to the way our brains work. Well, it's not natural for the way our society works to give ourselves chill time, to give ourselves the tolerance and understanding, you know, that each that that we are all struggling and that we work better when we work together. And those, you know, Anyway, that's about all the most inspiring stuff I can say there, but it's also the most truthful stuff I can say. So I hope that that is helpful. Brian McGlone, you have described members of the Sea Org as the most devout and fanatical followers of Scientology, and the Sea Org as a whole has been described by some as the paramilitary wing of the Church of Scientology. How many of these fanatics do you think would carry out acts of violence against the general public if ordered to by David Miscavige? Do you think the Sea Org could potentially turn into a violent paramilitary terrorist force if the Church of Scientology adopts a much more extremist or fundamentalist viewpoint after Miscavige's death? 
Hey, Brian, thanks for the question. And yes, I do. I used to say that Scientology is not, by its nature, a violent cult, and it's not something that's interested in taking up arms against its fellow man. And, you know, Scientologists in general, Sea Org members in general, are not violent people, and they don't want to be. And there are a lot of Hubbard issues and references about um, how war is bad. And in fact, the, you know, the goals of Scientology include a world without war. And without insanity and criminality, so there, you know, so there's an there's a mindset in Scientology that violence is not your your go to solution for the world at large. Clearing is, and and spreading Scientology information is. However, of course, sometimes you got to get rough with your fellow Sea Org member, and you know, because we got work to do, and we don't have time to be screwing around, you know, and that's kind of the attitude about that. As far as, um, you know, this being able to be ramped up even farther, I mean, if they're already at 11 and we're going to crank that dial up to 15 or 20 or something and really get these guys going, could that happen? Yeah, absolutely it could. It can happen with any group. You know, if you have the right leader and the right followers and the right message, you can make anything happen. I mean, it really is pretty much that simple. Um, you know, people are pretty push button about things and you can get them into an extremist mindset where you are, you know, getting them to, to a, a state of mind where you tell them to shoot person A and they'll do it. But it takes a lot of work to get somebody there. That's, you know, that's what we talk about when we're talking about radicalizing people. And Scientology gets people into a pretty extremist place, but very few are, are getting to a place where you'd say they were radicalized. Uh, where they're actually willing to do violence and will do so. This we do see from the Office of Special Affairs personnel, and this is why I talk about them being their own little sort of special breed. Um, you know, the people in OSA tend to have these sort of shark eyes. There's not a lot of emotion there. These are people who have been drained of emotion because they have been indoctrinated to believe that they are on a crusade where if Scientology doesn't survive, the world is literally going to end tomorrow. So they feel justified in doing anything to preserve and protect Scientology. And if that means stalking, harassing, you know, beating up, uh, getting fired, whatever they have to do to the targets that they're going after, they'll do it. They have no moral compunctions of any kind about taking out the enemies of Scientology. Um, and if that were to include physical violence, I'm quite sure that there are, you know, that the people at the Office of Special Affairs would be more than happy to do that. They are not good people. They have been indoctrinated into a very evil, very, very rationalized um, mindset that is pretty radicalized, okay? So that's how they can justify doing all the crazy, insane, and even illegal stuff that they do. So could they be pushed even further? Yeah, absolutely. Could other people in Scientology be driven into that same OSA mindset? Some of them could. You know, not everybody. I mean, there are, you know, there are limits to, you know, what you can do with people. Um, you know, when I talk about being able to radicalize Scientology as a whole, I'm, you know, I'm obviously not saying every single Scientologist. Some people are going to go, whoa, this, is, this isn't what I signed up for. And they're going to be, you know, keep their head level enough that they're going to not engage in that kind of thing. But you can take 
another certain percentage of them who are already, you know, thinking, wow, this stuff is amazing and it's the best thing ever and Scientology must survive into the future. And you start feeding them pieces of information about the bad guys and how the bad guys are trying to stop Scientology and how we have to do something about that and something should be done. Oh, and it doesn't look like the law wants to do anything about these bad people who are trying to stop Scientology, so I guess we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. And what are we going to do? Well, you know, we've stalked, we've harassed, we've followed them, and they persist. They won't stop. They keep attacking Scientology, and look at what they're doing. They're going to destroy us. We better have, I guess we're going to have to take them out. I mean, you get this progression, you know what I mean? So, um, and there could be lots of little little steps along the way to, to, to do that, but you could drive people into that uh, within Scientology. And um, yeah, so could it happen? Absolutely. You know, has it happened? To a degree, you know, here and there, some people have. There have been Scientologists who have perpetuated violence against other uh, ex-Scientologists or Scientology enemies. And I'm sure that will continue to happen into the future until, um, you know, we get a grip on this group and they are defanged completely. And, and the abusive nature of, uh, that's sort of baked into the DNA of Scientology, you know, it, it, it prevents any real self-correction. It prevents it, Scientology from becoming something decent, kind, or good. Um, so that's why there's not really a whole lot of options on the table for, you know, well, can we reform Scientology and make it better so it's not so like that, so it can't, you know, so you couldn't be radicalized in it. Well, you could, but it really wouldn't look anything like Scientology anymore, (laughs) you know? So, uh, best, I think, really, that it just goes away. I don't think there's really anything useful or constructive enough about it that it deserves to, to stay around. So, anyway, there you go. JR, is there any official explanation or popular consensus on what really counts as clearing the planet? I get the impression that it is not necessary for every possible person on the planet Earth to be cleared in order for the planet to be cleared. I understand that even in terms of the official position, the Church of Scientology doesn't really claim to prioritize clearing SPs or people without the money to pay for services so do these people have to be cleared as part of the end game before the goal of clearing the planet is achieved? Or would it be sufficient to achieve something more restricted, like an entire planet run by clears, where all government, social services, and economic institutions are subordinate to Scientology? Okay, great question, JR. And um, the deal with clearing the planet is it is a ratio. It is called... The within the world of Scientology, and, and this is not going to really clear this all up for you, okay? Because <laughs> it's still clear as mud. But what they say within the world of Scientology is they talk about this ratio between theta and n theta. And clearing the planet is the matter of flipping the script, so to speak, or flipping the ratio between Right now, there's a whole bunch of n theta and not enough theta. So we need to create more theta to balance and eventually overtake the n theta. So there's more theta. And that will result in the world naturally, organically, just becoming a better place. Calmer, more peaceful, less warlike, less criminal, less insane. 
that's how it's supposed to work. And the way that you generate theta is auditing. You can train people and get a little bit, but auditing is really where it's at. And ultimately, it is the OT levels and the delivery of the OT levels that must be happening in volume for the theta and theta ratio to flip, okay? Now, theta, I'm using these words as though you know what they mean. Theta, of course, is spiritual energy or spirit, spiritual substance, I guess you could say. It's not a physical thing. So I use these words that are, you know, describe physicality, but it's not a physical thing. Theta is not matter, energy, space, or time. It exists outside of this of the physical universe. Yet it's it, it impinges on the physical universe and, and thetans, are somehow related to theta or, you know, releasing theta. So a thetan or theta, um, rather, excuse me, is sort of this life energy. And n theta is interbulated theta, E-N-T-H-E-T-A, n theta. So interbulated theta. And interbulated is messed up, chaotic, confused, in a, in a, in a disjointed mess. So if you, you know, throw or inject chaos or uncertainty, fear, anger, you know, this kind of thing into theta, mostly turbulence, trauma, upsets, unconsciousness, pain, those kind of things interbulate the theta. They make it, you know, I, I, I ran into a wall and now I'm confused and I don't understand where things are. And, you know, this kind of, it's, it's, it's N theta. Um or, you know, angry and turbulated, upset people. You know, there's N theta there. And it's considered in Scientology that all of us have accumulated piles, mega piles of N theta around us. Um, It's a spiritual quality. Remember, this is all spiritual stuff we're talking about here. This isn't physical. It's It's not a real physical thing, but it's a reflection of your spiritual awareness and ability and and spiritual state. So if most of your mind or most of you as a spiritual entity is wrapped up in this chaotic, traumatic stress and and the abuse that you've experienced and and all of this, all through the trillania that you've lived, that's N theta. Plus, with the OT levels, you have the body thetans. And the body thetans are little thetans themselves, but they are totally interbulated to the point that they are practically unconscious and they're just stuck to you. And they are themselves little individual life units, just like you are, but they're stuck to you and they're, and they're in this really horrible, awful state. So the idea is through Scientology auditing, you will first untangle and sort out your own end theta of, you know, the engrams you've accumulated and the stress and the trauma and all that. And that is called getting to the state of clear. So you get to the state of clear in Scientology and you kind of basically have sorted out your own shit. And all of your N theta in your own little personal slice of the world is kind of, you know, disinturbulated. It's sort of like freed up again. You feel better. You feel lighter. You feel happier. That's the whole point of you know, flipping the end theta to theta is you're supposed to be lighter, airier, happier, etc. More frontal lobe uh, activity, right? So, um, okay, so then you get to the OT levels, and this is where you really start 
dealing with the end theta with a bulldozer. Like the analogy, and this is all how it's talked about within the world of Scientology, is that um, at the lower levels, before you, you know, getting on up to the state of clear, um, they give you, like, if you imagine, okay, here's the exact analogy that was given to me and others in Scientology, not by L. Ron Hubbard, but by other OTs who would come around and do lectures and talks about this stuff. And the analogy is that imagine that all the accumulated N theta that you personally are going to have to deal with in order to go free and, and achieve spiritual freedom and immortality, let's imagine that it's a beach. Like it's like a few miles across and it's this big, you know, section of beach and you have to empty it of sand. You got you to gotta get in there and you got to just get all that sand moved out. You got to move it over there, let's say. And, you, and, and that process of, of taking all that sand and moving it over there is the process of disinturbulating the theta. Okay, that's the analogy is here's all your N theta that you have to deal with. And you're going to go into Scientology and you're going to get auditing and gradually, step by step, you're going to deal with this. At the lower levels, they first, they give you a spoon. Here you go. And you start shoveling that dirt. And you think, this, is, this isn't hard. I can do this. And you're not even aware at that lower level of how much beach there is. You walled off that, a lot of that stuff a long time ago. You can't even see it right now. So you're kind of got the little blinders on. You got a little hat on. And you're sitting there in your little slice of the beach. And you got your little, you know, your little spoon, and you're just having a great time just spooning it out. And it's like, wow, look at all this work I'm doing. This is so amazing. And then you start becoming more aware as you move up the levels of Scientology. You're not clear yet. You just start moving. And you go, wow, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a lot better. I feel clearer. I feel like I can see things better. And you start seeing, oh, wait a minute. I don't have just this little towel worth of sand to deal with. I've got, I've got like, you know, a car length worth of, of stuff to deal with. Look at all this sand. Where did all this come stu- stuff come from? Because at the lower levels, you couldn't even see how bad off you were, right? So as you get more auditing, you start becoming more aware of how much and theta there is around you that you now have to deal with that you've been carrying around this whole time. Another way of looking at it might be the, uh, Jacob Marley's uh, chains, right? And, and from the Christmas Carol, how he how he built all of these chains and he had to carry them around with him in his afterlife because during his life he had been sinning and and doing all these bad things and he accumulated all this stuff and he had to carry it around with him. That was his punishment. Well, in Scientology, it's it's just kind of considered the way it is. You've been doing all this crap for all these millennia. And here's now what you have to deal with. And as you get more auditing, the analogy that's given is they give you a bigger spoon. You get a beet shovel, and then you get a shovel shovel. And then you start becoming even more aware of how much sand there is around you. Because suddenly when you get on the OT levels, the full length and breadth and width of this beach becomes clear to you. And you're like, oh my god. I really got a lot of stuff to deal with here. And by that point, you are using a bulldozer. And when you go in session on a daily basis on the OT levels to deal with the 
theta n theta and you're converting the n theta to theta, you know, you're moving that beach sand with a bulldozer, it's still going to take you years to move all that sand. Convert, in other words, all of that n theta to theta, okay? I know I'm, I'm beating these analogies to death. I'm sure you guys got it. But I really wanted to make it super, super simple and clear because this is what Scientologists think is the task before them. Each of them individually as a person, this is what they think they're doing when they're going up the bridge and getting all that auditing. And they truly believe that when they have this beach cleared off, that they will be personally free and they will have contributed to, you know, I guess you could say cleaning the whole beach for the whole state, right? And all the Scientologists need to get up to the OT levels and clean their beach, so to speak, clear, you know, clear all this N theta, convert it to theta. And the magic number that Scientologists are told is that if 10,000 people get onto and complete OT level 7, the, 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 the theta and theta ratio will flip. That's what's communicated to Scientologists. How did they figure this out? Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> they just pulled the number out of their ass. But it's the number that is communicated to people. And that's the general idea that Scientologists have about how to clear the planet. So I hope that might be a lot more than you expected to get, but that's the full and complete answer. There you go. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on here about all this. Really appreciate your viewership and your support, and I hope that if you are enjoying my channel and you're finding this uh, content entertaining, informative, and educational, then you will please consider joining me on Patreon, or if you don't want to join me on Patreon, then of course you can always use PayPal to send me a one-off uh, support, and that would be awesome too, because I very much could use that. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.